to Taxland with me, Fletch Heinemann. And me, Sarah Lancaster. So Taxland is our place where Sarah and I discuss topical tax issues that are affecting taxpayers and their advisors. It sure is, Fletch. So last episode, in episode three, we spoke about the employee contractor distinction. And today we're going to be extending that a little bit by talking about deemed employees um, under the Superannuation Guarantee Administration Act. I'm just going to call that the Superannuation Act or the Super Act. Nice. <laughs> From the outset, I think we need to just clarify that these individuals that we're going to be talking about are not common law employees. So yeah. we're completely out of that territory, but they're treated as employees under the legislation. I think this is a super important topic. Nice. Pun intended, definitely intended, because it's often overlooked. So small businesses understandably ask the question when they're engaging a person, is this person going to be an employee or contractor? I think everyone or most people will have that basic sort of question that sits in their head. But if they then conclude that they have engaged someone as a contractor, it's often overlooked as to whether or not that contractor can be an employee for some other reason, including because of this extended definition in the Super Act, which Mm. we'll get to. Um, it's also important because as we discussed last week, your penalties for superannuation or getting that characterization wrong um, are extreme. So they go to 200% of the super guarantee charge and then the commissioner's only got very limited remission power when it comes to those penalties. Um, and it's also quite topical, I think, because there's been a couple of cases. Most recently, the JMC full court appeal was decided in June this year. Mm-hmm. And then we also had that uh, case involving Dental Corporation and uh, Dr. Moffat, the dentist, sort of in mid-2020. Mm. Um So I guess we'll get into it, but um, to start off with, uh, employee is defined for superannuation purposes in Section 12 of the Act. It starts with what a common law employee is, or I guess an employee for super purposes will include common law employees. And then we have this big list of uh, contractors, people who are not employees, that are taken to be employees. We have a couple of popular ones that we see all the time, Fletch. One probably more than the other. The other one's quite interesting though. First one is a 12-3 employee, uh, people who work under a contract wholly or principally for their labour. And the second one that I really like uh, talking about is a employee or a deemed employee under Section 12-8 for our sports people, artists and musicians. I know that you like your sports, music and art. <laughs> we have to look after them as well. We sure do. All right, let's get into it. All right, so if we're looking at the starting point for Section 12.3, so we're looking at people who are working under a contract that is wholly or principally for their labour. But let's be clear on that. What does the actual section say? What's the deeming nature of that section? Yep, so Section 3 says if a person works under a contract that is wholly or principally for the labour of that person, the person is an employee of the other party to the contract. All right, so that's our deeming provision. So we've got contractor deemed to be an employee and then we've got the person who's the other party to the contract, so a little bit different to the person making the payment, so the person who's the other party to the contract deemed to be the employer. Yeah. And then the section uses the words wholly or principally. What does that mean? 
Yeah, sure. So it's really just a way, I think, of restricting the types of contracts that we're looking at. So you've got here, um, you know, essentially a concept of labour versus something else. And that something else might be, for example, a supply of goods. So where you've got a supply of goods, um, that is the main part of the contract that someone uh, is working under. then you could probably say that that contract is for the supply of goods Mm -hmm. rather than wholly or principally for the labour of that person. So um, the cases run through... And the ATO's view is that definition of wholly or principally really means chiefly or mainly. Yeah. So a little bit similar there to the personal services income rules in terms of picking up that that chiefly or mainly concept. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then speaking about the ATO, so the ATO's got a public ruling in relation to who are employees and who are deemed employees in SGR 2005 backslash one. Now, one thing we've got to be mindful of here is that those super rulings aren't binding mm. so that the um, for taxpayers, they're useful in terms of understanding what the ATO's position is, but technically they're not binding in the same way that a tax ruling is. Um, but anyway, we digress. In the, one of the helpful <laughs> things in that ruling is that uh, the commissioner gives some background as to where Section 12.3 came about. Yeah, sure does. So goes through some of, I guess, the early uh, cases, and we'll get into those uh, shortly, um, but really says that Section 12.3 was intended to extend the scope of the super legislation beyond those common law traditional employment relationships to include some independent contractors. and those independent contractors, what it was really targeted at, are those contractors who principally provide their own labour to meet the obligations under the contract. Uh, so the ruling goes through the um, Senate Committee's second report on the relevant bills mm-hmm. that passed um, the, or well, that are the super legislation as we know it today. And those bills in the, the second committee report and the, uh, sorry, the Senate committee report um, really say that uh, 12.3 was designed to include a person who may not be an employee in the normal sense, but who is in fact not very distinguishable from an employee. Sounds muddies suitably bit, vague. Yeah, I was going to say, muddies the water a little bit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um But uh, the ATO then goes on to say, however, the operation of subsection 12.3 has, in our view, been restricted by the interpretation which the courts placed on the equivalence expression um, in the definition of salary or wages uh, in the Income Tax Act. So that's where we get into the cases. And I know... um, I guess the first case or one of the early cases that looked at this was Neil and Atlas Products and it looked at the salary and wages definition and we first get this concept of it being necessary for the work to be performed personally. So if it was left open for the person to engage someone else, um, we get this finding or the possibility of it being a contract to, pro- a contract to produce a given result rather mm-hmm. than for labour. So do you want to go through uh, what the court said in Neil and Atlas Products? Yeah, these are, um, there's a couple of cases here that are some of my favourites because, so Neil was actually the Deputy Commissioner of Taxation, uh, one of the Deputy Commissioners in Victoria at the time. Uh, and so the case starts on the basis that he makes a complaint against Atlas Products, who's the the taxpayer in these circumstances, 
Um, and Mr. Neal is regarded or referred to in the decision as the informant. Now, that, that must have been the, uh, the language that they, they used at the time. But um, when we're going back to the 1950s and using phrases like informant, then in my mind, we're, we're sort of in the, uh, the thick of Cold War spy territory that uh, we've got an informant who's going to the magistrate to, uh, to dob in a, a company who's, uh, in this case, providing uh, roofing services. So um, what uh, Atlas Products did was it uh, was engaged to um, complete and fix roofs. Um, and so as part of what they did, they then engaged tilers. So the, uh, the, the tradespeople who would get up on the roof and, uh, and fix the roof and put the tiles down. Now, each one of those contracts, so there was no dispute that the, the tilers were, so it was agreed that they weren't common law employees um, and that they were independent contractors. Um, and so what the complaint was, was that the provision at the time, so effectively it was like a withholding, like a, the equivalent of the PAYG withholding yep. provision at the time for salary or wages, also extended to where there was payments made to a person um, under a contract that was wholly or principally for the labour of the person, so we get that same those same words used in this context. It's not superannuation, but exactly the same phrasing, which um, which is relevant. So um, the the but here the details of the contract are really important. So what the contract provided for was the supply of the labour of the tiler. Um, but not necessarily the tiler himself. It could be somebody else that he chose to use to do that work. Um, and it also included the material. So there was some wire and colouring, depending on what was involved in the particular job. So the, um, the magistrate in that case uh, concluded that uh, this was a case that because the agreement contemplated that the tilers could use their own labour or use somebody else's labour, then it didn't fit within the scope of those words wholly or principally for the labour of the person. Um, Which makes sense, really, when you think about it. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So um, what, uh, what it was clear, and we get this, we'll pick up this thread when we get to Dental Corporation mm. and Moffat later and then, and then JMC, but what they spoke about was that where the contract left it free for the contractor to either work himself um, or to excuse the the non-gender neutral language, but uh, back in the 50s, um, or to employ other persons to carry out that particular job uh, for that contractual payment, then it can't be said to be wholly or principally for the labour of the particular person. So it really then threads back to two things. That right to delegate to someone else then ties into that if if you've got the right to delegate, Actually, what you're getting paid for is not your labour, but the the production of a particular contractual, contractual result. result. Yeah, what have you been contracted to do? Mm. Okay, so that's um uh, that's Neil and Atlas Products. Now, your next favourite case involves uh, going back somewhat in time to when encyclopedias were sold, and I assume profitably sold, um, and in hard copy. And it involves a sales, an encyclopedia salesperson going door to door. Uh, it's a case of World Book Australia and the Commissioner. I'm just going to digress for a moment here because I remember uh, having a full set of encyclopedias uh, at my grandmother's house out in country Queensland, mm. and I loved going there on holidays and picking out the volume to have a look at a topic 
that I needed to learn about. And I really am quite sad that with the internet these days, that experience of sitting down, finding out the volume, starting with H and finding out, I don't know about horses, has really just left, I guess, oh, left the right. building. The that's internet's <laughs> changed it. Anyway, so we, uh, we we lament the demise of the, the humble encyclopedia. Yeah, they were good days, weren't they? Indeed. But uh, back on track, what happened in World Book? Um, so uh, this was another case of a uh, of an informant. Um, so, <laughs> so which is we need to I'm, get you out of your cold war territory. <laughs> which, which Who is, said tax was boring? It's terrible, right? I mean, these people are selling encyclopedias. Sure, that's that's doing good for the world at the time. So um, the the there was a, a Mr. Maiden who was the uh, the contractor that we're talking about in this case. He was contracted to sell encyclopedias. So when he sold encyclopedias, then World Book Australia then paid him a commission based on the um, the particular types of encyclopedias he sold, and obviously the volume of of sales that he made. Um, so the way that he went about selling his encyclopedias was that. Uh, he canvassed door to door, which is also something a bit of a throwback in time. That uh, I don't see too much of that these days. Um, he also canvassed his friends and acquaintances. So um, was at the barbecue and was selling encyclopedias. Um, he responded to inquiries that uh, that people made, as any good salesperson would do. Um, and then he represented the encyclopedias at school fates and shopping centres. So I can I really enjoy this case because I'm getting the sense that Mr. Maiden had a passion for selling encyclopedias. He loved an encyclopedia too. And from you know, some of the uh, the amounts that he was making, he was doing a good job of it as well. So uh, he also maintained minor office facilities at at home um, and had some incidental expenses that were listed there, um, including in certain cases um, paying wages to other people to sell those products. So the the Fortunately, in this case, there was a very clear agreement between World Book Australia and and Mr. Maiden. And under that agreement, the terms of that agreement made it very clear that he was authorised to act by himself, but also he was authorised to act through approved employees to sell these products. So the conclusion there was he was entirely free to choose the areas that he could sell the products, how he wanted to sell the products. But critically for our Section 12.3 analysis, he was to em- free to employ whatever method he wanted to, including the right to delegate somebody else to sell the products uh, for him. So we get a similar result there in World Book Australia that we did in uh, Neil uh, and Atlas products, making it clear then that we're, we're really testing um, whether the requirement is that the individual has to perform the services personally. So, um, all right. So once we go through from World Book, we then end up with a a couple of cases at the the start of the 2010s. Yep. The, um, there's a there's a massive decision in on call interpreters, um, which is a uh, a very good read. <laughs> it's a good case, isn't <laughs> you it? Yeah. Want to understand how uh, how the world of uh, interpreters works. All right, so now that we're here, um, let's talk about on-call. What were the facts there and then where did the judgment go? Yeah, really good question. I think we get a shift in, well, what doesn't turn out to be an actual shift, but (laughs) (laughs) at this point in time, a shift in this 
construction of 12.3. So yep. on-call involved um, some panel interpreters and the court in that case were considering whether or not they were common law employees but also whether or not they were deemed employees under 12.3. Yep. Um, Justice Bromberg destri- described the contracts as shambolic. <laughs> so we're starting, <laughs> starting from a good Starting from a good point. Um, but he uh, goes on to distinguish World Book and this concept um, of a contract that's for a given result or outcome not being a contract for, you know, that someone's engaged wholly or principally for their labour. Mm. So he goes on to say that it's not appropriate to construe 12.3 on that basis um, and that on the basis of World Book. Uh, on the basis of World mm. Book, yeah. So he says that it's not appropriate to construe 12.3 on the basis that if a contract's for a given result or outcome, that must necessarily mean that it's outside the scope of 12.3. So he disagrees mm. with that. So he goes through and uh, looks at the agreements with the panel interpreters, works through those contracts and says that he's he's not satisfied uh, whether expressly or as a matter of reality. So here we go into that, how these contracts are performed uh, concept, mm. whether or not those contracts provided a right to delegate. So he wasn't satisfied that the contracts concerned were not contracts for the interpreters to perform their work personally. And given that on-call had failed to satisfy them of that relationship and the fact that the relationship between the panel interpreters and on-call was not an employment relationship, it also then followed in his view that the on-call had failed to satisfy him that the relationship was not employment-like. And this is where we get this, uh, I get this, a relatively new phrase, I guess, following World Book and Neil and Atlas products of whether or not a, a relationship is in an employment-like setting yeah. rather than whether or not uh, someone's engaged under a contract that's wholly or principally for their labour. Um, so he comes to that conclusion. I think this is important that um, – Where this reasoning comes from is a reference to the underlying purpose of the superannuation legislation and really that purpose is of facilitating occupational superannuation for workers who sell their labour in employment or employment-like settings. Mm -hmm. So this is where this concept comes from. And even if he had been satisfied that they were not uh, common law employees, then he would have made the finding that they are working in an employment-like setting for the purposes of 12.3. So I think that really then takes us back to the Senate committee report Mm. um, and that concept of an employee not being an employee in the normal sense but is who who is in fact not very distinguishable from an employee. So we get this vague question of Mm. whether or not you're an employee or somehow not being able to be distinguished from an employee. Yeah. And you can see how that works from the perspective of of a parliamentary purpose when you're introducing a new piece of legislation that you just want to say, well, this is designed to provide for superannuation for employees and people who aren't employees, but we still want to make sure that these people are adequately provided for from a superannuation point of view. And so Section 12.3 gives us that by extending it to people who are working under contracts wholly or principally for their labour, but the other subsections as well pick up, you know, particular members of parliament um, or members of uh, legislative assemblies. Mm. We get to um, sports music and art later. So really areas that there's identified, well, 
it's easy to identify that there's a risk that they might miss out on superannuation over the long term unless we've got these specific subsections for them. That pull them into the net, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think there's taking that at a at a high level of saying, well, this is the purpose of it, that can be accepted. It then does get very difficult, though, if we then, um, once we have to advise on a specific fact pattern to say, oh, is this person working in an employment-like setting? Um, and I find the use of the word setting there really difficult as well because you could, um, and many businesses will have this, they will have um, people who are genuinely employees um, and they will have, they will engage contractors to mm-hmm. do, um, in some cases it will be similar types of work, but both contracts will be very different. And it's not until you get into the detail of the specific contractual terms, like we spoke about last week. Um, that you bet you get that difference, but you might find that your contractor looks and feels like that they're an employment-like setting in relation to that particular job, um, even you know when the terms of their contract would indicate that actually this is not like an employment contract at all. Yeah, the example I always come back to is a lot of businesses I see will have very short-term ad hoc contracts with contractors for overflow work. So Mm. in those situations, the work that you're doing looks and feels a lot like the work that your employees are doing, but there's a very specific purpose and result that that contract has been engaged to to achieve, so Mm. to speak. I think for on-call, the the panel interpreters in on-call, it's also relevant that um, the the finding on the common law employee question, so that they really... Mm. the court considered Section 12.3 in the alternative because it had already concluded that the panel interpreters were common law employees. So I think that that conclusion also then um, starts to bleed into the Section 12.3 analysis in the sense that there was already a finding that they were sitting in a, co- in a common law employee role. So yep. it followed that that must have been an employment-like setting for them if that decision was actually wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, on-call interpreters. We then go to Moffat and Dental Corporation sort of mid-2020. What were the services that had to be provided by Dr. Moffat in that case? So Moffat and Dental Corporation, they didn't describe the the services agreement as shambolic uh, in that case. (laughs) Just one step removed. (laughs) (laughs) But it probably wasn't as clear as what it could have been. Um, so th- this was part of the uh, the great set of acquisition of dental practices that was happening in the late 2000s, um, where there was a whole stack of consolidation going on in the, the industry. So uh, Dr. Moffat had sold, he had two practices, two dental practices, and he sold those practices to Dental Corporation. Uh, and as a lot of the agreements at the time provided for, so there was both an acquisition agreement, which was Dental Corporation acquiring those two practices, and then there was a related services agreement. So Dental Corporation then contracted back to Dof- Dr. Moffat to provide uh, particular services. Most of that was structured that way so that what Dental Corporation was paying for the goodwill in those practices uh, they didn't lose it on the basis that Dr. Moffat would walk out the uh, the door after the the sales. Yeah. So you can see how that uh, that worked. Now, I mean the the critical learnings in these cases is the specific terms of the services that are to be provided. So yeah. this particular agreement, I'll, I'll read it out because it's um, 
you know, it turns so much on the particular words they've chosen. So clause 3.1 says the provision of dentistry services and it says the practice principle, so Dr. Moffat, must provide and or procure with the consent of the dental corporation the provision of the dentistry services during the term at the premises. Um, and then it says the practice principal, so Dr. Moffat, acknowledges that he or she must provide the dentistry services personally during the term. Makes complete sense. The two <laughs> sentences are at odds with each other. Um, and <laughs> the I court mean, may not have described uh, it as shambolic, uh, but I- <laughs> yeah. And I mean, spoiler alert for JMC, which we'll talk about after the break. But again, we've got one clause, two sentences pulling against each other mm. um, in terms of what it is. So the words there must provide and or procure with the consent of the dental corp, the, the dental corporation. I'm not sure that you saw a the <laughs> is necessary there. It's just there to trip us up. Uh, the provision of the dentistry services. So what does that mean? Does that mean that he's to provide them? And if it says and or procure them. Procure- Can he ask me? Yeah, to pro- provide those services. Yeah, procure would, would indicate a, a right to delegate. Mm. Um, and then, but the second sentence acknowledges that he must provide the, the dentistry services personally during the term, obviously doesn't. It's problematic. So how did then the full federal court deal with the test that Justice Bromberg set out in On Call? So this employment-like setting test. Yeah, so the um, the full court in Dental Corporation and Moffat made it um, very clear that they thought that using the words in employment-like setting, they talk about it being a gloss on the text. Yeah, which- and that comes from, I guess, Justice Logan's decisions a little bit earlier from memory in mm. Racing Queensland. That's right, and that's because there's nothing in the actual section itself there that talks about an employment-like setting with the section Absolutely. says yep. only or principally for the labour of the person. So there's no reference to an employment-like setting uh, in those words. So, um, yeah, so the full court makes it clear that that's not the the test and that what we have to do is look at the statutory language. So is it wholly or principally for the labour of the, the person? Yeah. And so what then did the federal court say was the actual test? Yeah, so they say that Section 12.3 has three elements. So the, the first one is that there must be a contract, mm-hmm. um, which in this case clearly there was. Uh, the second element is that it's got to be wholly or principally for the labour of a person. So they emphasise the use of the word for in that context. I'll come back to that. And then the third one is that the person must work under the contract. So the full federal court said it's very clear in this case that uh, Dr. or there was a contract to start with and that Dr. Moffat was working under that contract. So the question really turned on the application of that second criteria, um, which is was it wholly or principally for the labour of Dr. Moffat? One word, it's three letters, four. It creates so much havoc in a lot oh, of does, like in a it? lot of authorities. It does. And what did the full court say then about that for that word for? Yeah. So they in looking at that, they go back to the clause in clause three point one. Um, they tease out the inconsistency between the first sentence mm. and the second sentence, and they talk about well the words and or. So remember that. Um, 
the clause said that he could either provide and or procure mm. uh, the services. So they say that the words and or would ordinarily suggest that he could choose mm-hmm. whether or not he had to uh, provide the services or procure somebody else to do the services. Um, but then that second sentence, which um, says very bluntly that Dr. Moffat acknowledges that he or she must provide the dentistry services personally, they essentially say that that overrides the the first sentence. Yeah. So that's on the basis then that there was a conclusion. So where we end up with there is the full federal court concludes that Dr. Moffat was required to perform these services personally and therefore we had a contract that was wholly or principally for his labour. All right. Shall we take this opportunity to have a quick break? Sounds good. Welcome back. Before the break, we went through a somewhat, um, would you call it a torrid journey? Yeah, or turbulent. A, a yeah. turbulent journey. Yeah, yeah through uh, through Atlas Products um, and then through Worldbook. We ended up at on-call interpreters. Um, and then, so some change in terms of the direction as to how we were applying Section 12.3 and certainly from on-call, a risk that it was in muddy waters mm. to pick up that you idea. I remember advising clients around that time and how to deal with this tough. concept of an employment-like setting. Yeah, It was really tough. Um, and so then we get back onto the previous course um, as a result of uh, Dental Corporation and, and Moffat. Um, I mean, we should point out at that point as well that in Dental Corporation and Moffat, there was a finding in on-call interpreters uh, at first instance that the interpreters didn't have a right to delegate. Mm. So even while we're talking about here that on-call interpreters uh, introduced this concept of having an employment-like setting, there was still a finding in that case that the particular panel interpreters didn't have a right to delegate their work. In which case, and this is acknowledged in Dental Corporation and Moffat, the conclusion was still correct. Yep. Um, it was just that the the reasoning had diverged from those those earlier, earlier. decisions. Mm. Um, then we end up over the last, uh, well, most recently earlier this year, we get the full federal court decision uh, in JMC. So what did the federal court say in terms of uh, the Section 12.3 analysis? Yeah, so the court really picks up um, the analysis from Dental Corporation and Moffat. So we've just got this consolidation of of those, I guess, earlier authorities and, and what was mm. said in Dental Corporation and Moffat. So um, the court goes through to say that um, really the extended definition and of employee in 12.3 looks at whether or not a person works under a contract that is wholly or principally for the labour of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, on appeal, neither side took issue with how the first instance uh, court expressed that test. Yeah. So we're really looking at three elements. So again, we're picking up that that analysis from Dental Corp and Moffat. So first we need to have a contract that contract must be wholly or principally for the labour of the person. That my favourite, yep, my yep. favourite three-letter word. And thirdly, the person must work under the contract. So they go on to say that that word for really picks up um, looking at the analysis of um, 
you know, or the, through the lens of who we're looking at this question on behalf of. So four is the labour of the person must be approached from the perspective of the of the person who may be a, an employer in the situation. Mm-hmm. So a person under this contract will be performing services for wages. That's not all wages or a payment. Um, that's not the question that this, that 12.3 is designed to look at. What we're looking at is what um, the putative employer or the potential employer um their perspective of it and whether or yeah. not their perspective is that they're engaging someone for for the labour of that person. For their labour. For yeah. their labour. Mm. Um, so really where we get to is and then a restatement of a contract uh, that is not wholly or principally for the labour of the putative employee if that contract is a contract for the produce, production or for the provision of a given result yep. um, and the employee or the contractor is paid for that result. So we're picking up then that, I guess, line of authority from Neil and Atlas Products and World Book as well. Yeah. All right, so, well, let's dig into the facts in JMC. What happened there? Yeah, so JMC uh, provided tertiary education, higher education programs to students. Mm -hmm. Um, It engaged Mr Harrison, Nicholas Harrison, who was a qualified sound engineer or technician, so had skills that uh, go far beyond my reach. Uh, But Mr Harrison was engaged to provide teaching services by lecturing classes and by marking exams and assignments and things like that Mm -hmm. um, in the course of a specific bachelor, so Bachelor of Creative Technologies in Audio Engineering engineering and sound production. Um, So the structure of the contractual arrangements between JMC and Mr. Harrison over the number of years were, you know, important. As we say, the devil is in the detail of the Mm. contracts in all of these matters. Um, And and I guess the structure of the contracts between JMC and Mr. Harrison were interesting because they involved a number of different documents and both the commissioner and JMC placed different weight and had different arguments based on parts of you know, what the mm. contract was. Yep. So the first key document I think um, is a memorandum of understanding and there were multiple memorandums that were signed over the course of many years. Yep. Um, but it was signed and adopted for the courses that were taking place in each trimester. And I'll read out Clause 5, which is the important part mm-hmm. for the analysis later on. So the services provider may subcontract, sorry, services provider is Mr. Harrison, may subcontract or assign to another person or corporation the provision to the academy of the teaching services required of him or her by this agreement but must do so with the written consent of the academy, so JMC's representative. So here we don't have a second sentence like there existed in Dental Corporation and Moffat. acknowledging that those services are to be provided personally by Mr. Harrison. We really have, I think, a a clear clause that um, gives Mr. Harrison a right to subcontract or assign or ask another person um, to provide the teaching services, but on the the provision that um, JMC's representative consents in writing for him to do so. So, That clause itself, um, there was evidence before the court that before the trimester started, someone from JMC sent Mr. Harrison an email referring to the relevant memorandum of understanding and said, um, you know, we want to retain your services for this trimester coming up for these subjects, these audio type subjects. Mm -hmm. Can you please let us know if you accept 
the schedule of works that we've asked you to do? And can you please also advise if you propose to subcontract the work to another party so we can assess their credentials prior to the trimester mm. starting? Yeah. And that section, that part in the email, I think were was a very uh, important part from an evidence point of view from both parties' case, yeah. the arguments that they both raised. Yeah. So what were the arguments that's from either side? Yeah, so at first instance, oh well, I guess the arguments at a high level from the taxpayers from JMC's position was um, that this isn't a contract that's wholly or principally for the labour of Mr Harrison. Uh, rather, he was contracted for a result um, or and, well, I guess it's an and, and also mm. there was a specific right of delegation within the contractual arrangements that they had, which also meant that it wasn't a contract under which Mr. Harrison was engaged wholly or principally for his labour. So the, at first instance, the commissioner said that the emails that were sent just before the start of the um, trimesters uh, really varied the terms of the memorandum of understanding to narrow the scope of the right to subcontract. Mm-hmm. Um, so the commissioner contended that really that email meant that the terms of the contract were varied or in some way, or that the terms of the contract included those additional terms, um, which were important from the commissioner's point of view, um, because the commissioner goes on to say that the effect of that variation or the estoppel or waiver was that if Mr. Harrison intended to subcontract the teaching services to someone else, he had to give JMC notice of that intention. So the effect from the commissioner's point of view, was really to narrow the scope of Mr. Harrison's right to subcontract, and therefore the court could. It was open for the court to conclude that that narrowing meant um, that Mr. Harrison was engaged wholly or principally for his labour. Yeah. Yep. So where did we end up to then, with the, in the first instance decision? Yeah. So first instance decision. Um, the primary judge said that Mr. Harrison only had, and I'll quote here, an illusory or chimerical right to subcontract or assign, and in considering it, had to be a hollow, a hollow or empty right. Nice. It's very descriptive. I, re- I really liked. I really liked the it way is. that. I really liked the way it was written. But um, the point, I guess, was that the the relationship between Mr. Harrison and JMC had a potential right to subcontract, but it had to be with the consent of JMC. So that right that JMC uh, was arguing for was really illusory. So that's where the that's where the the conclusion at first instance came about. Mm. So in that case, was he engaged under a contract wholly or principally for his labour? At first instance, the uh, court says yes. And then on appeal? And then on appeal, the full court uh, disagrees with it. So the full court says that the contract was for the provision of teaching services and not principally for the labour of Mr. Harrison. Mm. And really um, the way that the full court deals with the first instance conclusions um, at a high level is to look at um, the interpretation of the contract. So we're going back to those principles of construing the contract that that the parties entered into. Mm. Um, so the Full court says that the emails that JMC sent to Mr. Harrison that included this um, request, can you please let us know if you intend to subcontract Mm. um, the services so we can 
check that person's credentials. Um, those emails, the full court said, really just indicated um, for Mr. Harrison to advise whether he proposed to subcontract the whole of the teaching services so that JMC could consider you know, that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the full court really said, well, look, the, the point of this, uh, I guess, agreement is that Mr. Harrison has a right to subcontract those services and it makes sense in the context of JMC's business model that they also you know, will need to check the credentials of the person that yeah, he may he may subcontract to. There was also evidence before the court that that had actually happened in the past that he'd actually mm. um, engaged or you know subcontracted to another lecturer to come in to take lectures. Mm. Um, I think yep. in one of those cases he engaged somebody else to come and um, pinch hint for him in a in a lecture so that he could go and take on another job, yeah. a more lucrative job exactly. than delivering a lecture and then marking uh, <laughs> marking <laughs> exams. So I think yeah. he, he had a better offer and took the opportunity to to take it and the contract allowed him to do that. Yeah, good evidence. So, I mean, really you come to this conclusion that, um, you know, if there's a right to delegate the services under a contract, how can that contract be wholly or principally for that person's labour? Mm. Yeah. So it's a um, – I mean, where we end up to – uh, as a result of this, really, for services agreements, is going to be the importance of those provisions dealing with the right to delegate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of services agreements that we look at where it's not clear. Sometimes there'll be no, there'll be no express reference to a right to delegate or not. Um, if it's something that the parties have turned their mind to, it really should be in that services agreement, one way or another. One way or another, I agree with that. Yeah, making it clear. Um, if the parties haven't turned their minds to it yet, they really need to. They really need to um, think about whether or not um, is there an actual right to delegate here if required? And if there is a right to delegate in particular circumstances, and it might be that the right to delegate comes with the uh, you know the business uh, similar to to JMC, the business having the right to make sure that they're comfortable with the the person who's being subbed in to do mm. that work. Um, but the parties really need to turn their mind to that to then figure out where they stand on that because we get a potentially very, very different result for super purposes. Absolutely. All right. It's probably enough of uh, subsection 12.3. Can we move on to 12.8? Yeah, I know this is your favourite. It so, is yeah. one of my favourite yeah. and I don't, I don't see it enough, to be honest. Like I have to go yeah. digging for it, but I really enjoy it every time I look at it. Uh, so 12.8 is phrased a little bit differently from 12.3. And here we're looking at the context of uh, people uh, who, well, I guess you tell me, are involved in music, play, dance, entertainment, <laughs> sport, <laughs> our sports artists and all entertainers. Of the, uh, all of the fun stuff. Um, but what does 12.8 say, Fletch? So, yeah, okay, let's get the, the section down first. So um, it says that the following are employees for the purposes of the Act, so the Super Guarantee Administration Act. So the first one is a person who is paid to perform or present. So this is going to cut us out because we're not paid to perform or present any form of dance, music or cultural activities. Question whether or not if we get paid to present tax land. We could fall within this. That's a it could very be a future point. question this for could us. Be a future, yes. Well, <laughs> sorry, let's, I digress. Let's, just let's make get sure back we to get it. Our <laughs> legion of fans together first. Um, so, a person who is paid to perform or present, or to participate in the performance or presentation of 
any music, play, dance, entertainment, sport, display, or promotional activity, or similar activity involving the exercise of intellectual, artistic, musical, physical, or other personal skills is an employee, and this is the critical part, Mm. is an employee of the person liable to make the payment. So when we're talking about Section 12.3, we were talking about a contract, Mm -hmm. wholly or principally for the labour of the person, and the deeming provision there said the employer was the other party to the contract. To the contract, yep. This is different because it's talking about that the person who is liable to make the payment. Um, it then we've then got an extension in subsection B, which talks about a person who is paid to provide services in connection with an activity referred to in paragraph A is an employee of the person liable to make the payment. So for that, think about I always think about the um the backstage staff and all the people who right, yeah. do the important work the to actually make it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, it's Vicky, our producer here as well, that's doing all the uh, all the hard work in the background. And then the the last one is a person who is paid to perform services in or in connection with the making of any film. That's geez, tape or disc. <laughs> or if <laughs> this might need to be updated. <laughs> <laughs> or if any television or radio broadcast uh, is an employee of the person liable to make the payment. No reference to podcasting in Section 12.8c. But you get the the gist here of what we're looking at is people involved in music, play, dance, entertainment, sport. And the, the critical distinction for from a technical point of view is that we're looking at the person who's liable to make the payment. Now, the um, I mean, commonly where I see a lot of uh, borderline cases in these in relation to um, um, in are in schools and colleges. Mm. Um, so where we've got to consider whether people who are coming in and providing, you know, they might be instructors for uh, orchestras or they might be coaches of sports teams. Um, those things we really have to run it through the lens of Section 12.3 to, well, ordinary common law employee definition first, then Section 12.3, and then also Section 12.8 in case they're caught as somebody who's providing services in connection with one of those activities. Um, but in terms of the the cases, now I know that you enjoy watching horse races. <laughs> Did you want to talk about those two cases that, uh, well, they, they both went uh, to appeal at the full federal court level? They sure did. So, um, and both taxpayers were successful in the first instance and then went down on appeal. Mm. Um, so I guess I do like horse racing, uh, Fletch. I have been known to own a very small portion, a hoof as we tend to call it in my family, <laughs> of a horse every now and then. Um, but I guess looking at Racing Queensland, this um, uh, race, the Racing Queensland Board and the Commissioner of Taxation, this case looked at um, who was liable to pay a jockey's riding fees. Mm-hmm. And it's probably good to have a bit of context about the payments that jockeys received because the riding fees are something that is distinguished and different from prize money fees. Mm-hmm. There's this clear demarcation between a jockey's riding fees uh, versus the prize money fees. If a horse wins a race or you know, wins some prize money in a race, that prize money then gets divvied up um, in particular percentages and goes to the trainer who trains yep. the horse, the owners who own the horse, and the jockey who rode the horse yep. in the particular race. But really here the jockey's riding fees are the specific um, 
fee that they are paid for the ride and also for barrier trials and things like that where there mm-hmm. might not be any prize money associated with the outcome of the race. Yep. So this case um, was heard by Justice Logan at first instance and then overturned by the full court on appeal um, and involved the factual uh, background involved a time before GST, Fletch, mm-hmm. going back some time. So the Justice Logan at first instance looked at and considered evidence of the payment arrangements before GST mm-hmm. and what happened in those, uh, in those days was that the trainer um, asked the jockey to ride the horse yep. for the particular owners and was responsible for making the payment to the jockey. Yep. Then separately you get that prize money split between the owners, trainers and jockeys. But when the GST came in, uh, the Racing Queensland board said to everyone, you know, you've got additional compliance and onerous burdens lots of now. Supplies. You've got lots yeah. of supplies in this chain. <laughs> Someone's got to figure out how we yeah. how we do this. Who's invoicing who for what? Yeah. yeah, and and how the GST treatment plays out. So the Racing Queensland Board to help with the evidence at first instance was given by a couple of um, key witnesses, mm-hmm. and really uh, what they said was that the Racing Queensland Board implemented this system that they called a centralised prize money system, mm-hmm. um, and really the aim of that system was to not necessarily change the obligations from before the GST was introduced or before this new system was introduced, um, but was to help with the additional compliance burden that the GST brought in. However, as the full court went through all of the evidence of the uh, sort of newsletter blasts and the letters that the board had written to, um, you know, different people in the racing industry at the time, what uh, a part of all of that evidence was that with very clear statements that Racing Queensland or the board um, was going to pay and the you we are responsible for paying yeah. the jockeys' riding fees under the centralised prize money system, so under yeah. this centralised system. Um, so on appeal, Justice Griffiths and Justice Darrington said, um, you know, at the primary judge correctly and so Justice Logan correctly identified that really the issue in this proceeding was who, as between Racing Queensland, the owners or the trainers, was liable to pay the riding fees to the jockeys. So there we're picking up that distinction in 12.8 between who is liable to pay that amount mm. to, to the jockeys. Um, so we uh, proceed on the basis that we identified the correct issue, which is good, um, but then on appeal we come down to whether or not um, essentially, whether or not Racing Queensland uh, discharged their onus of proving um, or of establishing that it wasn't liable to make the riding fee payments. And that's where the full court goes through um, those documents that existed from around the time that the centralised prize money system was being implemented. Um, and they made a conclusion that what in fact, what in fact actually happened was different from you know, what the evidence was uh, that was intended from bringing that system into place. Mm. So they say there, and I think that this is an important part, I guess, of their conclusion, that w- were it to have been the case that having paid the riding fees to the jockeys, um, Racing Queensland deducted an equivalent amount from the prize money paid to the owners, it might be accepted that the riding fees were being paid on behalf of the owners. However, that was not the case. So Racing Queensland say, well, we've got this fancy system that's helped with the compliance burden, but really it's still the owners who are responsible for paying 
the jockeys their riding fees for the ride. Mm. Um, but the court, um, you know, looked at the evidence and can see that that money is being paid not from a cut or not from a reduction in the amount of prize money that would otherwise be returned to the owners or even to the trainers who mm. are you know, brokering these deals, brokering the agreements um, and asking the jockeys to ride the horses in the particular race. And I think that that was critical to the to the full court's conclusions. Yeah. So, I mean, really the thing that we need to watch out, if we take it back to like very specific fact patterns Absolutely. Here in terms of the the contracts and then also the the payment provisions. Um, I think in practice, in a lot of cases, we would expect that the other party to the contract would be the one that's liable to make yep. the payment. Um, obviously not the case here. Um, but what it does do is it really highlights that if we're looking at um, particular contractors and we've concluded somebody is a contractor, and we're checking through Section 12.3 to start with as to whether it's a contract wholly or principally for their labour. And then we identify that it's got some connection to sports or cultural activities or music. So we have to run it through the Section 12.8 lens. We just need to be really careful there that there's potential that somebody else might be liable to make that mm. payment. And you could see that it would happen quite um well, it may happen quite regularly in the context of arts where you've got payments coming potentially from grants or from other um, bodies who are making payments might be somewhere different from the actual person who's entering into the contract with the person to provide the services. Yeah, and I think that the evidence of the contractual relationships between the parties is really important. So here the evidence between um you know, whether or not the um, trainers were talking to the jockeys on behalf of the owners mm. and what that phrase on behalf of meant. You know, we're we talking about a trust relationship or some form yeah. of, con- you know, w- there wasn't significant evidence for the full court to yeah. then put a finger on exactly what the nature of that relationship is. So mm. where we've got, I think it's important that where we've got um, you know, a potential uh, potential person who could be liable for the payment who's not the putative employer, mm. it's really important that we pin down um, and all of, and have evidence about the relationship between each of the parties to that agreement. Well, that's exactly right because the if we think about it in practice, if the person who's liable to make the payment doesn't realise that they're up oh, for yeah. a super guarantee charge obligation here, again, we've got super, we've got penalties, we've got nominal interest, the admin no component. No amendment period, yeah. You know, in this case, the, the risk in these that we also um, need to make clear is that you know, potentially when you're dealing with a class of subcontractors, if somebody gets this wrong and it affects the whole class of subcontractors, so here we're not just talking about a jockey, we're no. talking about all of the jockeys. Across so that, all of Queensland and then also like more broadly across Australia. Yeah, so for a business it will also pick up a particular contractor um, and if we've got that if we've missed that, the risk is that there's potentially a, a significant exposure there. So I mean, that, that's probably the sort of thing that we come back to. Yeah, and it wouldn't be tax land if we didn't end up with a case where we've got a taxpayer failing to meet their burden of proof being the, <laughs> being the problem. The insurmountable burden of proof. <laughs> <laughs> but a, a clear written agreement would be a good starting point um, from the taxpayer's point of view to get that risk down. That would firstly set out the rights and obligations of the parties, but the other thing is that as soon as we've got a written agreement between the parties involved, if we then identify what that super guarantee risk is, we can then attribute that so that somebody's liable for it 
And everyone's very clear. Everybody's clear. And then we don't end up before the federal court. Exactly. Save some legal fees along the way. Yeah. All right. That's a good episode, Fletch. So I think a good time to recap and finish up. I um, have enjoyed this topic today. I think it's really important that where where businesses are looking at engaging individuals and sole traders um, and are working under the assumption that they've engaged them as independent contractors. So they've ticked off the box that says this person's not a common law employee. We don't forget about the extended definition of employee for superannuation purposes. Mm. So I guess the key ones that we see probably most uh, regularly are 12-3 employees and we need to be checking um, the terms of the contract and specifically whether or not we've got that right to delegate or whether or not someone's being engaged under a contract and working under a contract that's wholly or principally for their labour. And then um, for our sports people and artists and musicians, um, we need to be looking at the contractual relationships. Great if we've got them in writing and if not, someone needs to go through the evidence to find out what the agreement is between the parties and who's liable for making that payment to the specific person. Um, as always, please feel free to leave us a comment or if you want to discuss any particular circumstances, Fletch and I are always happy to take calls. Uh, in the meantime, we'll see you in a couple of weeks for our last podcast of 2023. How Very exciting. exciting. Um, thanks for travelling to Taxland with me, Sarah Lancaster. And me, Fletch Heinemann. Bye for now. Bye.